0: This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. I think first I should apologize for taking so long to make another episode of this podcast. I was traveling from Russia to the United States. Battling jet lag a little bit and then had some technical issues that came up. But now I'm able to record again and I'm glad to be back at it. And I think there was some benefit of the delay because as I gathered my thoughts for this topic, worldliness in the church, I was able to flesh out a few things instead of trying to get it all done within a week or so. So we'll get started on this, I think. I had a dream a while ago that led me to this topic. Of worldliness in the church. And of course, you know how dreams can be. They can be full of confusing imagery and things like that. But when I woke up, I just realized that what had happened in my dream was really on the theme of worldliness and being bound or caught up by the things in this world and how that gets into the church. And this is a theme that I've been thinking about for the past several years. It's been the topic of many conversations that I've had with other believers. And I think now's a good time to address this issue. But before I get into that, I'd like to just remind you that if you have any questions or any comments, anything that you'd like to share or ask about, anything related to this podcast, feel free to contact me at ancientpaths at Cantrell And then I have something else that I'd like to tell you about. I have had a side project for a few months and I can finally announce it. I've been working with the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation and we recently launched a new foundation website. You can visit that at www.elizabethelliot.org. Her name is spelled with an S, Elizabeth, and her last name Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T. So it's Elizabeth Elliott, all one word with an S in Elizabeth and two L's in Elliot.org. And if you don't know much about Elizabeth Elliot, visit that Site, and you can go to her biography. There's a place there you can see about her. And also, there is a talk called The Jim Elliott Story. Her husband was murdered by a tribe in South America back in the 50s. Him and four other men were killed. And she was a straightforward and serious follower of the Lord. And she spoke the unvarnished truth in love. She passed away about five years ago, I think. Olga and I have received a lot from her ministry, and I really encourage you to go and listen to what she had to say. Just very quickly how we got here, Olga translated one of Elizabeth's books into Russian, and through that process, we became friends with Elizabeth and her husband, Lars, and through that friendship, I became involved with the foundation. Part of my work has been preparing audio recordings and other resources for the site, And we currently have about 150 of her long-form talks. They're about 45, 50 minutes, an hour long. And we have over 400 of her radio programs on the site. She had a radio program called The Gateway to Joy for 13 years. And just to give you an idea of the scope of this project, we have another 600 cassettes. (laughs) She was recording on cassettes back in the 80s and 90s. But that means there's another 1,200 talks that we need to process and get on the site. And (laughs) since she did that radio program for 13 years, there's another almost 2,000 Gateway to Joy programs that we need to put together. Now, this might interest you because you listen to podcasts. We created the Elizabeth Elliott podcast, and that's a weekly podcast of her long-form lectures. Like I said, they're about 50 minutes each. They come out every Monday. Uh, You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I encourage you, visit the site, take advantage of all the resources there. Lots of audio recordings, videos, photographs, biographies, history, just lots of really good stuff on that site. You can also sign up for a weekly devotional. I believe that comes out every Thursday by email. So there's a lot of good stuff going on there, and I've been working on that. I started on it in earnest in August and so it has been a project for me for the past several months. And now to the topic at hand, worldliness in the church. I have traveled quite a bit around the world and I visited many churches in quite a few countries. Of course in the United States, in Europe and also down in some countries in Africa. And everywhere I visit I see the world's culture creeping into the church. And sometimes it doesn't creep, it leaps into the church. And often it seems that believers are unaware of how the world and its ways have been embraced by the church. This is perhaps because they don't really know the Bible or perhaps they don't really submit to God's truth when it entails them becoming an outsider. That is being a Christian in the world but not of it because a lot of people love to be in the world and of the world. Uh, Some people may know the truth, but not submit to it. And I can say that part of this was the case for me. I was quite unaware of the American culture when I was living in America. It's only once I got out of American culture and was able to look back at it, after several years of being in Russia, that I began to understand some of these things better. I knew that the world should not creep into the church but I really didn't know it deep in my heart from experience. And I found that world culture is to humans like water is to a fish. The fish is not really aware of the water. That's just its normal place to live and really doesn't have any idea that the fish could live anywhere else or that there's anything else out there. And we're often unaware that we're in this medium, in this world culture. And we're often very unaware that life can really be lived outside of it. It's just so hard to get out of our home culture. Several years ago, a friend told me this story. His name is David. So David was talking to a friend of his. They're having lunch. And uh, David started talking about the state of the church in America. And David was doing what a lot of people do, kind of complaining about the church and the failings of the church. And the man that he was talking to started weeping. And David asked him, What's wrong? You know, what's going on? And the man was just so heartbroken over the state of the church. He was weeping for the bride of Christ that had been so dirtied by the world's ways. And my friend David said it really convicted him of his sin of judgment. That David at the moment didn't have mercy or love or deep affection for the church, he was just sitting in judgment of it. And That's been a lesson to me, and I want to tell you, I love the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his church, so please don't think I'm speaking with condemnation here, but rather, I want to help us see the dangers and the traps that are set for us believers, because if we become ensnared in these traps, then we're going to be limited. We'll be bound up and unable to walk in the fullness that God has for his people and we'll be sinning. We'll be doing things that are contrary to the will of God. We'll be hurting his heart and offending him. So the theme here is worldliness in the church. I think this will probably be in two parts because there's a lot to cover. Certainly, there's a lot more than just two episodes of a podcast to talk about how worldliness gets into the church. But first here, I'll talk about the USA and more broadly in the West And this even applies to churches that have been planted in other cultures by Westerners. Because I fear that many Western missionaries just don't realize that they have imported not only the word of God into this culture and in the church, they've also imported some of these aspects of their home culture that they were just completely unaware of. So what are some of the aspects of worldly culture that creep into the church in the United States? And the first thing that has come to mind is the entertainment culture. Uh, The United States just loves to be entertained. People in the USA uh, spend tremendous amounts of money on being entertained. And there's this entertainment culture. Hobbies are part of this. We spend times doing things that feel important but don't have eternal value. And I'm speaking from experience here. When I was living in the USA and had a job and doing pretty well, I, you know, I had a sailboat and I had a motorcycle and I would go scuba diving sometimes. And these were hobbies that I just used to fill up my life so that I felt like I was doing something meaningful. Later, when God really led me to a place of self-denial, moving over to Russia and all the things that that entailed, I realized that he promises us abundant life. And we don't need to try to fill up our lives with hobbies and things like that. If we walk with him, we have a life that is full to overflowing, an abundant life. And yet, worldliness in the United States is often about entertainment. That entails self-gratification, the desire and the expectation to be thrilled. And yet, you know, you go to a movie, but there's no real deep change. You might feel like you've participated in something that's real But then we go home and uh, there's no real change, no eternally meaningful change. And part of this entertainment culture is also escapism. Rather than really engaging with the world as it is, this entertainment culture presses people to avoid reality. And of course, the Lord is all about really engaging the world as it is and also engaging in the truth as it is. Instead of trying to avoid reality, the people of God need to be walking in reality, not trying to get away from it. And that's part of this entertainment culture. Another aspect of entertainment culture, actually it may be completely separate, I guess, but it's a spectator culture. We watch sports, movies, Netflix, get on the internet and get entertained, be a spectator to sit back and watch. And the way this transfers into the church is something that used to be called seeker services, which are like big performances and churches begin to be built like theaters. And then the church staff sort of sees itself like performers and the people attending the church sit back and watch as church is presented to them. And there's this feeling that can creep into churches that we need to do things that keep people's interest. We need to entertain them and take the attitude of a performer, presenting something that people watch instead of something that they participate in. This can also translate into the idea of church shopping. Now, I want to be careful about this. I want to say that God is looking at our hearts. He is checking the motives of our hearts There are times when we can go and visit other churches as a way to discern where the Lord is leading us. But there are times when we may go visit other churches because we're trying to find some place that we feel like fits us, fits our lifestyle, some place that we feel comfortable or happy. And there's a great danger in thinking of church as a source of happiness for us, Yes, of course, there are times when we are really, really hurting, and we need the comforting touch of the Lord, and that very often comes through our relationships in the church. So please understand what I'm saying. It's good to be comforted and find rest in church. However, church is a place we go to die to ourselves, not to gratify ourselves. We go to church to serve God, not to be served by him, and we go to serve our fellow men, We go to worship God, not to have an experience that makes us feel good. We need to go to church to die to ourselves and to be in the place that God has put us. Peter says that God sets us together like living stones. And when we go to a church, when we become members of a church, member of a local congregation, we should really know that the Lord himself has set us there, not that we've chosen it because we're thinking of ourselves like consumers, but that God has set us in that place as a living stone, a place where he's building up his body. I'm going to mention something that I've mentioned a few times. I'll talk about it a little bit more here, and then later I'll really cover it pretty deeply, I think. But I've mentioned that the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, he was the Archbishop back in World War II, he said, a sentimental, and hedonistic generation has no room for wrath in its conception of God. Well, in another episode or two or three, I'll talk about the wrath of God and how the modern church very often doesn't like to hear about his wrath and his judgment. But there is a key verse regarding this wrath of God, this part of his character. In Romans 11, verse 22, Paul says, Consider therefore the kindness and the severity or sternness of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Like I said, I'll talk about that more in depth about the wrath and the judgment of God. In addition to his grace and mercy, he is both kind and stern But very often, the modern church does not want to hear about God's sternness because many people in the church are indeed, as William Temple said, sentimental and hedonistic. Well, let's talk about those two words for a second because he's using the word sentimental in a way that we don't really use it so much in modern times. But to be sentimental means to be driven by emotion, seeking emotions to validate meaning or to just feel good. To be sentimental is to give emotions a high position in how you discern what is right or wrong or the choices that you make. And he says the people are hedonistic. Hedonism is a philosophy. You've probably heard of it. It's a way of thinking that believes that seeking pleasure and avoiding suffering are the only components of well-being, that pleasure is the highest good. Well, William Temple put his finger on this back in the 1940s, and I think the West is much further down this road of being sentimental and hedonistic, emotional and self-focused, trying to bring pleasure and be happy. And this translates in the church to people saying, God wants me to be healthy and happy, or I have a right to be happy and healthy since I am a child of the king. He promises nothing less than the best for his people. Now, I will say that this is actually true, those two statements. God wants you to be happy and healthy, and you have a right to be happy and healthy. However, in this world, we are not promised those things. They are in the world to come. The Lord Himself said, In this world, we will have trouble, but we should take heart because He has overcome the world. And why would we allow the world into the church when Jesus' work is to overcome the world? We have to be very careful about that. We should not be sentimental and hedonistic. And yet the world is sentimental and hedonistic, emotional and self-focused. I have a story that illustrates this, and it's really heartbreaking. I was talking to one of our partners in Russia not too long ago, and we were talking about this subject, and he told me the story of a pastor in Russia who gave some advice to a lady. She came in and was telling the pastor about how hard her marriage was, how difficult things were in her marriage. And the pastor said, God wants you to be happy, and you are not happy in this marriage, and so you should leave your husband. You should divorce your husband that's terrible. A pastor giving a woman advice to leave her spouse because God wants her to be happy. And since you're not happy, then you just leave. That's terrible. We know for sure that God hates divorce. That's in the scriptures. We know that his heart is always towards reconciliation. Elizabeth Elliot used to say, If you want to be happy, I don't really have advice for you, but if you want to be holy, then let's talk. He would say to people, do you want to be happy or do you want to be holy? Now, hedonism is directly related to our current obsession with self-esteem. And actually, I say current obsession, but it's been going on for a few generations. Again, I'm going to quote Elizabeth Elliot. Can you tell that I've been reading a lot of her stuff recently? Elizabeth Elliot calls this the vice of self-esteem, which is a little shocking because self-esteem is just pretty deeply rooted in the church now, and she calls it the vice of self-esteem. Let's talk about it for a second. If you want to define esteem, it really means respect and admiration typically for a person or to set a high value on or to regard someone or something very highly. That's what esteem is. Self-esteem means respect and admiration for one's self, to set a high value on the self. That's what self-esteem means, and I can't think of anything that is more opposite to God's will for us than self-esteem. And self-esteem is pretty fully entrenched in the Western culture, and very much inside the church. And sad to say, very much exported by missionaries who go to other cultures and are so caught up in the idea of self-esteem or self-value that it creeps into the teachings there as well. Well, rather than me going on about it, I think I'll quote a few people that talk about this. The first is, again, Elizabeth Elliot quote, letters sometimes come to me from people who are, quote, working on, unquote, their self-esteem. Usually this means that they are doing their best to feel good about themselves. This is an exercise in futility. Gerald Van calls this the disease of self-culture. To have peace, one must forget himself. To forget himself, one must walk in truth. To walk in truth, one must love God and his neighbor. When self-esteem is high, self-knowledge is very small. Think about the time before we were born. Throughout all that abyss of eternity, we were nothing and could have done nothing, whatever, to bring ourselves into existence. Consider next that we received our being solely because God willed it and sustains us every moment of our lives. Of ourselves, we are nothing. There's a lot of good stuff in there. When self-esteem is high, self-knowledge is very small. It is an exercise in futility, trying to feel good about ourselves. J.I. Packer in Rediscovering Holiness wrote, sin is an irrational anti-God syndrome that drives us to exalt ourselves and steals or hardens our hearts against devotion and obedience to our maker. Lorenzo Scapoli, he wrote back in the middle ages. He said, "To preserve yourself from this danger, choose for your battlefield the safe and level ground of a true and deep conviction of your own nothingness." End quote. <laughs> That's great. To preserve ourselves from this danger of pride, we choose for our battlefield, a very safe and level ground on which to fight, and that is a true and deep conviction of our own nothingness. Now, quote C.S. Lewis here. He's really good about this sort of thing, and he wrote in Beyond Personality, quote, the more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. It's no good trying to be myself without Him. The more I resist Him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own hereditary and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. But there must be a very real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether, lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find, in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in." The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. I've often said it, repentance, the Greek word metanoia, repentance, means to have a new way of thinking to turn away from that old way of thinking and embrace the truth of God and the mind of God and the thinking of God. And the very first step is to just try to forget about the self altogether. I like what C.S. Lewis says here, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Amen. I say amen. We must not look for ourselves. We must try to forget ourselves. Well, next time I'm going to continue this conversation about worldliness in the church and I'll talk about American corporatism, how the world defines success. I'll talk about some of the worldliness that I've seen in the European church, also in the African church. And I have some other quotes from believers who have gone before. So until next time, my friends, I pray that the Lord will continue to lead you on his paths Because his ways are always good, and they always lead to rest for our souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.